Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs rooms of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Judas has bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name, Akeldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and has gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. Thank you very much, Kirk. Thank you. And good job with those names. When we preach through the genealogies and numbers, that's the guy right there. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about God's will for your life? Or have you ever wondered what it was? Maybe generally speaking, like, God, you know, what is your general purpose for my life? What did you create me for? What's my mission on earth? And maybe specifically, maybe you've asked God to provide some insight into his will on some specific questions. Maybe you said, God, what is your will for my life in terms of marriage? Is it your will that I get married? Is it your will that I remain single? Is it your will that I marry the person I'm dating? Is it your will that I have children? And if so, how? Natural birth or adoption or, or foster? Is it your will that I change jobs? Or what is your will for me professionally? You know, where should I go to college? What kind of degree should I seek? Is it your will that I switch jobs? Or is it your will that I stay? Is it your will that I pack up my family and move to a different area where you've opened up a new opportunity for me? 
Is it your will that I strike out on a new risky business venture? We ask God all these kinds of questions, and and it's good because, first of all, the Bible invites us to ask those kinds of questions of God, and it also indicates our heart, that we value God's input in our decisions, and that's a good thing. But if you've ever sought God's will for your life, you will also notice that it's not as simple as just asking the question and then he gives you an easily digestible answer in the exact same way 100% of the time, right? It's almost like God is some kind of being (laughs) beyond us that we can't just manipulate and get him to do what we want, right? So we, you know, we try to learn how to hear God's voice through prayer and we try to learn how to discern his will. We read books we watch videos, we go to conferences, and these are all good things. And again, it shows the condition of our heart because we want to be near to him and hear his voice. But it's not as simple as just plugging in a formula, right? We can't just say, if I do this and say this and give this, then I will receive, I'm guaranteed to receive the answer that I want. It's not a formula. But what if I told you that in the text we just read, There is a pattern, not a formula, but a pattern that if you put it into place in your life consistently and practice it consistently, that it will help you to more easily align yourself with God's will more of the time. Would you be interested? Yes or no, anybody? I'm glad you said yes, because that's what I'm talking about today. (laughs) So if you said no, it would have been a bad moment. (laughs) Let me give you the pattern that I see in the second half of Acts. This is your big idea for today, and then we're going to work through this. The disciples sought God's will through prayer, scripture, and humble submission to God's kingdom purposes. Prayer, scripture, and humble submission to God's kingdom purposes. Let me show you where I see this as we start walking through the text this morning. So as Kirk read, the disciples have returned from the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended. They returned to Jerusalem. That's exactly what Jesus said to do, and they are following his orders to the letter. They're supposed to wait in Jerusalem for the gift that God had promised, which was the Holy Spirit. So they return to Jerusalem, and they're waiting. A couple things Luke points out at this point. First of all, they've got a name change or a title change. They're not called the disciples anymore. They're called what? The apostles, right. What's the deal with the name change? Simply put, Jesus has commissioned them. Now, he has He trained them, and he said, here is your mission, I am sending you. An apostle simply means one who is sent. So they have a little name change here to indicate that their mission is now active. So Luke calls them, and he will call them this for the rest of the book of Acts, the apostles. It refers to that group of 12 disciples, well, not Judas, as you learned from the text, not Judas Iscariot, but the other 11, and one who will be chosen in this text who bore witness to the truth of Christ's baptism, his life of ministry, his death, and his resurrection. So that's what Luke is referring to when he says apostles. The second thing is that he lists them all out. 
And uh, if you were counting the names as Kirk was reading them, you would notice that there's only 11. The apostles are down a man. Did you find out later in the text, or you know, if you knew it already from the Gospels, Judas Iscariot has killed himself. He sold Jesus, he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, which led to Christ's death on the cross. And when the gravity of what he did finally hit him, he killed himself in a very gruesome way that Luke kind of adds parenthetically into this text. But the disciples are down to man, and this is going to come back in a minute. But I want to show you something that the disciples did before they do anything else. They return to Jerusalem. They're following Jesus' orders. And as soon as they get there, verse 14, it says, They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So now the apostles have been joined by some other disciples, and they are constantly united in prayer. This is the very first thing they do. And Jesus told them to wait, right? He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the gift my father promised. He didn't say it's going to take X amount of time. He just said, go and wait. And the disciples, uh, they're waiting. There's two kinds of ways that you can wait. Active waiting and passive waiting. Passive waiting is when you wait for something and you're just bored out of your mind. And you're watching the clock until that thing that you're waiting to have happen finally happens. Uh, Best example, the doctor's office. You sign in five minutes before your appointment, or 15 minutes before your appointment, because you've got to fill out the paperwork, and then you wait. And it's seven, the appointment's at seven, you're scrolling on your phone, just trying to ignore the fact that you haven't been called in yet. You're just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. You've been scrolling for about 30 minutes, trying to not look at the clock, and then you finally look at the clock and realize it's only been 30 seconds. And you're just bored, and you're waiting for that moment where what you're waiting for finally arrives. That's passive waiting. Then there's active waiting, where you do something with that transitional time that you have. Maybe you're waiting for somebody to arrive at your house, and so in that transitional time, you realize, I've got an extra, I don't know, maybe an extra 10 or 15 minutes. I can give the bathroom a touch-up or pick up all of my daughter's toys that I already cleaned up that she's now flung all over the four corners of the living room. You know, you can wait actively and prepare for that thing so when it shows up, you're ready. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're waiting actively and expectantly for the promise that God is going to give them. And it says that they were praying, but it also tells us how they were praying. Or it it gives us, I guess a better way to say it is it gives us a characteristic of their prayers. It says that they, in verse, uh, verse 14, it says that they were constantly united in prayer. That's the New Living Translation. Uh, A more literal translation like the ESV or the NIV, they say things like they were all in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. So when I first read this text years ago, I saw, you know, it said that they were constantly united in prayer, so I assumed that meant that they were praying constantly. It's not actually what the constantly, that word, is modifying. Now to be fair, they are as the, as the ESV and NIV and other texts say, devoting themselves to prayer, which means that they are giving time and effort and energy and resources. You know, when you devote yourself to something, that's what you do. 
you're devoted to your spouse or your children or your job or your church or your neighborhood, you give of yourself and you sacrifice some things so you can be more fully devoted to that thing. So please don't misunderstand me. They're, they are, you know, they're still eating and sleeping. So technically, no, it's not a constant, you know, talking prayer, but they are certainly devoted to it so much so that they are certainly doing it near constantly, I would imagine. But that's not what the word constantly is modifying, and the original Greek backs up this, uh, the New Living Translation on this. The word constantly is not modifying how much they were praying. It was modifying the unity with which they were praying. It said they were constantly united in their prayer. Not just that they were devoted to prayer and doing it a lot, but they were constantly united in prayer. Uh, If you go back into the original Greek, the word that we translate as constantly united or with one accord, you know, it wasn't just put in there so we could have really corny jokes like, you know, what is a disciple's favorite car? Honda, because they were all in one accord. I should have I told Keith the, the first to get on the drums for that one. Or I wrote one for the message today, and I'm going to inflict it upon you, so sorry in advance. How many instruments did the uh, apostles have in their band? Just one accord, the in. Uh, yeah. I was waiting. I had to wait for a second for the extra groan. That was worth it. It's a dad joke. I'm a dad. It's a condition. I have a problem. It wasn't just put in there so we could make terrible jokes. The Greek word that we translate as constantly united or one accord is, oh, oh, I have it in my brain, but I want to make sure I say it right, is homothmadon. comes from two other Greek words. Homos, meaning one or the same, and thumos, meaning passion. So they're not just together physically praying, but they are praying with one passion. They are united in passion, in their purpose. It's like they have the same mind. They have the mind of Christ, and they are all praying towards the exact same direction, expectantly waiting for the promise of God. Now contrast this with the disciples when they were walking around during Jesus' ministry constantly bickering over who's the greatest in the kingdom. And they were trying to figure out who's going to land on top of the pile. Well, when they met the resurrected Jesus, every single value that they had got completely turned upside down because the kingdom of God works totally differently than the kingdom of man does. And so what you see here is that rather than being fractured and divided in their prayers, they are, they are constantly 100% of the time, they are united in their prayers, pursuing the exact same thing. So what does that have to do with God's will for us? The text speaks of, of having the mind of Christ, being united both with Christ, but then also being united with each other, with the church, like the apostles were. Here's the deal with prayer and why prayer will assist you in discerning and actually Yes, it will help you to discern, but it will also help you to align yourself better with God's will for you. Because it's one thing to learn what you think God's will is, and it's another thing to actually do it and align yourself with it. Prayer does both, but I want to talk about the alignment thing. It's much easier to find God's will when you're united with him in prayer. 
when you have the mind of Christ, it's much easier to align yourself with his will. You can't find God's will without Jesus. Um, we, we've talked about prayer a couple different times this year, and so I don't want to go too deep into the practical stuff. Um, in the 101 series, we talked about prayer a bit and gave some tips on how to pray, and if you don't know how to pray, how to start praying. Um, but I, I want to show you that in the text, it's not, just, it's not just that they were praying. You know, they took a little time when they had it, right? It's just like, well, I have an extra couple minutes and I'm going for it. No, they, they, they prioritized this. And the way in which they are praying with one passion being united with Christ and with each other shows me something about the condition of their hearts that they wanted to know God's will for them and they wanted to not just wait passively but that they wanted to actually capture whatever it was God wanted to communicate to them before his spirit finally drops in Acts chapter 2. But they were aligning themselves with Christ and I, I feel like some of the reason why I guess, uh, here's, I guess here's a good way to say it. Some of the reason why we struggle with the concept of prayer, or we struggle to make time for it. You know, we say, well, I'll get around to it. When I get around to it, if I have an extra five minutes, I'll do it. Um, if I'm driving in the car, if I'm doing something else that's mindless and repetitive, maybe I can, I can pray. I don't think that's the general spiritual temperature of Echo Community Church, just to be clear. I think that in the last couple weeks and months, we're stepping up our prayer life, which is fantastic. But... When the apostles were praying, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. True prayer is not just squeezing God in whenever he fits. True prayer is aligning yourself with the Spirit of God. And here's something that's really, really cool. I think, I think the reason why sometimes we treat prayer casually like the way I just described is because we really haven't tasted what it's like to be truly aligned with Jesus Christ in our prayers. Because if you've really experienced it, there's nothing else like it. Once you get a taste, it's, it's crazy. It's simultaneously like, I'm never going to get enough of this. And also, this is completely enough. It's so paradoxical. But being united with Christ in prayer will align you with his mind, aligns you with his will. Even God's spirit helps us in that. When you become a Christian, you receive God's spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible even says that when we're praying, we don't know how to pray. Have you ever been there where you're like tapped out? Maybe you've, you've prayed so much you don't know what else to say. Or maybe you find that words are failing you. Or maybe you don't even know how. You're like, I think I should pray for this person. I have no clue how to pray. God's Spirit will actually join with you and pray and lead you in praying for that person. The, the Spirit also prays with words that are inutterable, says the Bible. So there's a unification that happens with Christ when you're praying, but then there's also a unification with the church. There's also that them being united together. And I, what I see in, in not just in this part of Acts, but also in the entire rest of this book, is that the church is totally united in prayer, even when they're not together. Even when they're, some of them are in prison, or they're far apart, not only are they writing letters and saying, hey, I'm praying for you, but they're, they're praying. They're still seeking God. They're still united in prayer with Christ and with each other. And I think this kind of unity in prayer, I think a couple of things. Number one, I think it's just ridiculously attractive 
to the world, right? Unity is attractive. We're seeking it, generally speaking, but we have this tendency to constantly divide ourselves on just about every issue imaginable. And I don't even need to list them, because you know. And we divide our things in America differently than people in other countries. There are other issues that we don't even understand that people divide themselves on. It's human nature to do it. I mean, we even do it for fun. We do it with sports teams and stuff like that, right? We constantly want to pick a side and say our side is better. But you, and that's why unity is so, is so attractive when you find it, right? Have you ever worked for some place that was totally unified and you were like, man, this culture is awesome because I know we're all working towards the same, the same goal or, the, or a team or something like that where you're all united with that pat, the same passion, the same purpose. It's super attractive, right? But here's the other thing about that. It takes an entire group effort to get there. I really believe that the kind of prayer, this praying with one passion towards one purpose and all that stuff that I said already, that is God's will for Echo Community Church. God wants our church, or he wants that kind of prayer to be characteristic of our church. But what I see in the Bible is that it's not We can't get there unless it's a group effort. So let me challenge you. We need to be unified in prayer, and there's a couple different ways we can do that, and I'm already preaching too much on this point, so I'll, I'll just give you two really simple ones. And it's actually what we do while we're here on Sunday mornings. We're all actually together. It's really easy to be united since we are united here. So two things. Number one, how can we be united in prayer when we, when we pray as a congregation, you know what, Pastor Zach just led us in prayer. We're going to pray again later, and different people at different weeks will come up and lead us in prayer. Sometimes God will give a word that's specific to that moment, and we'll pray over that. You know, we had, we had a word like that a couple weeks ago where we actually, all of us in the room, united in prayer and praying towards our more permanent facility. And that was an amazing moment. If you were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was such, the unity in the room was palpable. It was incredible. And so when we stand up here and when we're praying for whatever we're praying for at that moment, even like the ABC prayer, right? The salvation call at the end. If we're united in prayer, maybe you don't need to pray that prayer. You know, you've given your life to the Lord or you've recommitted and you you know you're good with him. You know how you can be unified with the body of Christ in that moment is to pray for the people in the room who haven't made that decision yet to pray that God would, or that they would submit themselves to the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's just one, that's just one simple way. There's a million other examples. Another one is with the prayer time that we have down front. I cannot tell you how amazing of a privilege it is to be able to stand down here and for you to be willing to actually share the stuff that you're going through with us And to allow us to unify with you, to link arms and say, hey, I'm going to help you carry this burden now. I mean, bearing one another's burdens and praying for each other, it's all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. But we have the privilege to to link arms with you and say, you've been pursuing this by yourself with a passion, right? You've been seeking God's will for your life or you've been bringing him a need or even even if you're rejoicing, if something awesome has happened and God's, and God's met a need in your life and you're just coming down front to say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. We have the privilege of linking arms with you and saying, I am going to be unified with you in your prayers. So take advantage of these times when we get to unite specifically in prayer 
in our service. I know it's, you know, it seems weird, like, coming down front. I get it. I'm born and raised Baltimore. We're skeptical of everything. I get it. But don't miss the opportunity that we have to be unified in prayer. And don't miss the opportunity in your own personal time to lift up this local body of Christ and to lift up the body of Christ elsewhere in the world. It's much easier to find God's will when you're united with him in prayer and when you're united with the church in prayer. Let's move on. Second point is scripture. I lost my water. I think that's my water. It might be Tawny's, but oh well. (laughs) I hope it was mine. (laughs) Sorry. So let's talk about Scripture. I'm going to give you the next point in your notes. Or actually, I'll do the last point because I preached over it and forgot to mention it. Constantly unified prayer was the foundation of the disciples' approach to discerning God's will. It was that word foundation I struggled with. Do I say atmosphere? Do I say backdrop? Do I say foundation? Because really, it's all three. It was just the, it was the atmosphere around them, an atmosphere of prayer. It was the backdrop to everything they do from this point forward in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. And it was the foundation because they're about to run into a problem that they need some wisdom on discerning God's will. And so an attitude of unified prayer set the entire foundation for that. So the next point in your notes after that is this. By examining scripture, the disciples answered the question, what has God already said about this? So let me show you where that is. In verse 15, uh, it mentions there's 120 believers gathered together at once. So it's no longer just the apostles and a couple other people. This is, is a large gathering of disciples of Christ have come together, and they're all praying. Peter stands up and starts teaching from God's word about how Judas, um, in doing what he did, fulfilled some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. You see some of these in the book of Zechariah that we studied a couple weeks ago. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that's said about what's going to happen to Jesus in the Old Testament. And Peter, and Pastor Phil mentioned this last week, how during the, the training and the time that the disciples were with Christ for those 40 days after, or 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, their view of Scripture was elevated. So now instead of just being like a bunch of laws or things you had to follow or stuff you had to memorize, they're actually seeing the truth of Scripture and that it all points to Jesus Christ. So Peter begins teaching, and he, sa- and he shows them, hey, these are, some of the, these are some of the things the Bible says about Judas and says about what happened. And then he actually, I don't, the text doesn't say that, like, did in that, that in that moment that he stumbled upon this, or maybe he, you know, had already, that he already learned this, or that God spoke something to him. It doesn't say specifically. But as he's teaching on this and, and making this clear, Peter says, the Bible also says, let someone else take his position. So it's not just that there's all these things, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it happened, but the Bible actually says that there's something we have to do to act on this now. Now we're down to 11 people, and I don't have time to go into the, all the symbolism that there is with the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel and all that kind of stuff. I mean, in Luke 22, Jesus says that the, uh, that the disciples in his coming kingdom would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you assume a one-to-one correlation there, um, if you have 11 and you need 12, there's a problem. There's other things that the 12 being complete and all that kind of stuff. Um, We'll move on from that. But what you need to know is that not only 
are they down a man, but that the Bible specifically said, let someone else take his position. Peter has discovered that the Bible already had something to say about where they are, about their predicament. And then they're tasked with doing something. The very next verse, he says, So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us while we were traveling with Jesus. So they discovered something the Bible already said about it, and then they were in the place where they needed to submit themselves to God's will. They didn't ignore it. They didn't fight it. They didn't go, well, maybe we should do some discussion. Do we really need to replace him? Do we need to bring somebody else on? They said, well, the Bible says it plainly. We need to do it. And they set about doing it. So what does this have to do with learning to discern God's will and learning how to align yourself with his will? To talk about that, we need to talk about this. Why this book is so important. Psalm 138, verse 2 says that above everything else, literally above everything else in all of creation, God exalts two things. His name and his word. God's word is exalted above everything else along with God's very name. This means that this book, the words of God, not the, you know, the, the, paid, the paper it's made on and the ink it's made on, that's not important. The fact that this is the word of God that God himself has exalted above everything means that it is exalted above our personal experiences. It's exalted above our feelings. It's exalted above misconceptions we have about it. It's exalted above history. It's exalted above everything. So why sometimes, when we want to ask for God's will, do we fail to open the book and look for it? I mean, if God has exalted this above everything, why would he circumvent this to give us an easy answer? Now, it is easier to pray, and again, like I said before, we should pray. We absolutely should pray. And start with prayer. A prayerful attitude is the best way to study the Bible. But sometimes we start with, God, give me, you know, tell me what you want me to do, yes or no, or point me to a certain decision, and then we kind of leave it. But chances are, God's already said something about it in here. This is everything that God thought we needed to know. Nothing he thought that we didn't need to know. There are some things that we don't understand about God that are not in this book, and that's not for us to know yet. But sometimes we try to circumvent what God has already said in an effort to just maybe, you know, just tell me, just make it easy for me. And in doing so, we disrespect the word of God that he's exalted above everything. We take the Bible so casually. Again, it's, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. No, I can't wake up an extra half an hour early just to read a proverb. I mean, some of these books in the Bible you can read in less than half an hour, especially in the New Testament. The letters are pretty short, some of them. I mean, Romans is longer. Corinthians are a little longer, but it doesn't, I don't want to devalue the Scripture by saying it doesn't take much to read. But 
It's an indicator of our heart and the way in which we view God's exalted word when we say things like, I just don't have time. Because, yes, you do. Because you make time for other things. And I'm not, I don't need to preach that the whole way down because you know it's true. There are places in this world where people are literally dying to get their hands on this book. And some of us are sitting on multiple copies of this book in different translations on our shelves at home that we never even open. We approach this so casually, but when it comes to seeking God's will for our life, you can't skip what God has already said. Here's why. God's word is the definitive representation of his will. Nothing that God tells you is his will will ever contradict what's in this book. Old Testament, New Testament. It will not contradict it. If you get a message from God that is contradictory to Scripture, heads up, it's not from God. It's from your mind, it's from the enemy, it's from somewhere else, but it's not from God. God will never contradict himself because he can't. (laughs) Because he is faithful. He's always the same, yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change. So what's in this book is the definitive will of God. And if he's already given you this, he wants you to pay attention. If they're his words, they reveal his will, okay? So how do you know what God's will is for your life in certain situations? Example, do you want to learn how to live uh, healthy sexually? Look in the book. Do you want to learn about wisdom in your finances? Look in the book. Seriously, every bit, this is still, this is still kind of blows my mind, every bit of, of contemporary wisdom that we have about finances, maybe with the exception of like a stock market and cryptocurrency, because I'm pretty sure they didn't have cryptocurrency in the Bible. All the principles that we use, like how to budget, how to live with margin, how to be able to give, how to be able to help support those who don't have what we have, it's all from this book, every bit of it. Every bit of of conventional wisdom, like practical wisdom is in this book. Wisdom for how to live a holy life, wisdom for how to be free from sin and addiction patterns. Do you want to know how to be a good parent? Read the book. Do you want to know how to be a good spouse? Read the book. Do you want to know how to follow and align yourself with God's will? Read the book. Don't try to circumvent this in your search for an easy answer. Okay? Don't take this book casually. And again, it's not the physical pages and stuff it's written on. It's the fact that it is the word of God that he's exalted above everything. So don't leave this out when you're looking for God's will. Now, interestingly enough, the, uh, God's will in here. It's not super specific. It does say, Peter recognizes, it says, someone needs to replace Judas. It does not say, and then here's how. Because sometimes that's where we get stuck. We've aligned ourselves in prayer with God, and we know, and you know, we, we've looked in the scriptures, or we remember something from the scripture, and we're like, okay, I'm very certain that this is the path I need to go on. But sometimes we get stuck in that middle area where we're like, but there's not specifics? You ever been there? You want to know the specifics, and sometimes God will give them to you, and sometimes he won't, and I don't have an explanation for that. Right here, God does not give specifics. He says, you need to replace him, 
And that's it. So what do they do? Well, they apply some practical biblical wisdom. Peter says, well, practically, if we've been called, we've been sent by God as apostles to witness to the truth of Christ's death and resurrection, then if we're going to replace them, they need to be qualified to speak about Christ's death and resurrection. So he lays out some practical wisdom here, and if you want to put in your notes, uh, kind of like as a bonus thing, you know, we said prayer, scripture, and submission to God's will, and the big idea, if you want to give yourself a little bonus, put wisdom in there. Because for situations when you don't specifically have all the answers, the Bible doesn't provide an exact roadmap for you, the Bible will provide wisdom for you. And you can utilize that in discerning and aligning yourself with God's will. So he says, the qualifications he gives here in verse, having trouble seeing it, uh, verse 21, he says, we need to uh, find the replacement from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the time he was taken from us. So it needed to be somebody who had been present at Jesus' baptism, who actually saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus, and then heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's a big old sign. So they needed to be there for that. They needed to be there for his ministry And it's important to note, too, that when you read through the Gospels, the 12 disciples are not the only disciples that Jesus has. There are other disciples, and some of them come and go, but some of them do stick with him for a while. They're just not the 12 disciples who were originally called by Jesus Christ. So they needed to be with him through his ministry. They needed to see his compassion. They needed to see his his power, his miracles, what he did, and how he inconvenienced himself in order to help other people. They needed to see him set an example, even sometimes of when they were in the middle of serving and Jesus was like, come away with me, let's get refreshed. They needed to see that example. And then also, they needed to have borne witness to the fact that Jesus was actually crucified and was dead and then that he was resurrected. One or two of these things was not enough. If you're going to be an accurate eyewitness, you have to witness everything. So Peter lays out some practical qualifications with some sound biblical wisdom. And then they narrow it down. It's about 120 believers. Factor out the apostles. That's 11. So there's like 109-ish. And of that group, I don't think there was a single bad apple. I don't think anybody in that group was somebody who was like, no, I don't believe in this whole Jesus thing. Because Many of these people experienced Jesus. Later in the Bible, it actually says that he appeared to hundreds of people during that, during that 40-day period. So lots of people have seen the resurrected Christ. Not all of them really recognized what they saw, and not all of them then came and, and uh, sought his will with the rest of the church. So the 120 that are there, they are solid. There are 120 people solid. It's like our population of adults on a Sunday morning, 120 solid. And uh, (laughs) they narrow it down. But it doesn't give them an exact answer, does it? There's still two people who totally fit the qualifications. Matthias and Joseph, called Barsabbas, also named Justice. Two guys, Joseph and Matthias. So they were prayed up. They were united with Christ in his church. They sought 
the Bible. Bible gave them a thing, told them to do it. They used sound biblical wisdom, and they still didn't get an exact answer. So what did they do? They didn't sit around and go, well, you know, let's deliberate on this a little, little more. They didn't wait passively and just say, maybe, you know, the heavens will open and Jesus will be like, it's Matthias! They didn't argue over it. They sensed in that moment, based on, and the Bible doesn't say this, but based on what they do, based on their action next, they sensed that at this point they had done everything they could and needed to do, and now it was time to act and trust that God would affect the outcome. Because there is a difference. I, I, okay. There's a difference between moving too fast, and there's a difference between waiting with wisdom. Sometimes God wants you to wait. Has God ever told you to wait? To wait on him? Maybe to wait on clarification? Maybe to wait for an open door? Something like that? If you sense that God wants you to wait, you ought to wait. But sometimes you might sense that God wants you to move forward. And you might recognize in your own mind, I've been responsible up to this point. I've been prayed up. I've sought God's will in prayer. I've sought his will in the Bible. You know, I've talked with some other friends and sought wise Christian counsel. Um, you know, we've applied wisdom to the situation. And you might recognize sometimes in those moments that God actually wants you to act even though he doesn't give you all the details. Because you can still follow the will of God even if you don't know all the details. So here's what they do. They submit to God's will in an interesting way. And I know some of you, as you told me, were looking forward to this part where I talk about gambling in the Bible. <laughs> Here's what they do. They've nominated the two men, and they pray. They say, O oh Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in his ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was elected to become an apostle with the other 11. So they do all this prep. They leave it in God's hands. They roll the dice, and that's the end of the story. Let me pray for you. Just kidding. I'll tell you what happened. They, it, it might not look like they're submitting to God's will because it does look like a roll of the dice, doesn't it? We did all this stuff. We still don't have an answer, so we'll just cast some lots and then see where it lands, and that'll be that. Here's what they were actually doing. In the Old Testament, casting lots was actually a way that God would make his will known. There's a proverb, and I'm sorry, for whatever reason, I didn't put it in this version of the notes, and I can't remember the number off the top of my head. It's like 36 or 38 or something like that. There's a principle that says, you know, the, uh, the lot may be cast, but God decides and knows the outcome. And so what they were doing was basically relying on a way that they knew God would show up in and affect the answer. The important thing to note is that they acted. Once they recognized we don't need any more details, we've done this stuff, we feel confident that God wants us to act, they didn't wait around anymore. They went ahead and acted even though they didn't have the details. And they did it with something they found in the Bible. Interestingly enough, there's a reason we don't cast lots anymore. You know, we don't sit around in the office and cast lots of which of us is going to preach and stuff like that, and who's going to be on the welcome team, and you know, who, should, who should we nominate for different kinds of leadership? Let's just put all the names in a hat and pull them out. We don't have to do that anymore. 
I mentioned this earlier that this is kind of like a weird, it's a very unique transitional period for the disciples where Jesus is not with them anymore physically. They can't just turn to him and be like, Jesus, we have a problem, please give us an answer. At the same time, they've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet either. So they are seeking his will and demonstrating it for us in a way that we can learn from. They take a method that was used in the Bible, and that was cool. But they never do lots again for the entire rest of Scripture. And the reason is because in the very next chapter, as we're going to talk about next week, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And God's Spirit takes up residence in them, and now they actually have God with them. And they can commune with him in a way that they were not able to before, but also they are given power, they're given additional wisdom, all sorts of stuff, tons of benefits from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they no longer need to cast lots to say we're not really sure about your will because they can actually seek God's will for themselves and hear his voice. So that's why you don't see lots anymore for the rest of the Bible. But I want to point out something else too. I think an example that might be helpful for us as we consider how do we, what does it look like? Because we're not going to cast lots anymore when we're making decisions. So practically for us, how do we kind of put this plan in action when we're not really sure what the details are? I'll point you to the Apostle Paul. Not one of the original 12 apostles. He did have an experience with the resurrected Christ. It was totally different. He was a very unique apostle. He was sent also to the Gentiles, to people who were not Jewish, to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. And when you, read, uh, when you read Scripture, you like, at least I would think, that of all the people that could hear God's voice in the New Testament, of all of them, prob- Paul would probably be like right up there tied with number one for people who could ask God whatever they wanted and receive an answer that was clear and they heard it. I would like to think, you know, he was, he was that connected with God and he is super connected with God. But you know what's interesting is sometimes, sometimes God would speak to him like that and be like, all right, I want you to go to this city. I want you to do this stuff. Paul would get up, he would go to the city, and he would do that stuff. And then sometimes God didn't give Paul a direction. But you still see Paul going out and doing some stuff. He still travels. Why is he doing that? It's because Paul understood his mission. And when he had sought God through prayer and through scripture and through wisdom, and he still didn't have all the details, he set about accomplishing his mission on the earth. Even without all the details, Paul would start walking. He would go in a direction towards a city. And you see in the book of Acts, and we'll get to this part next year because it's a little bit further into the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit would check Paul and redirect him as necessary. So Paul, knowing his mission, didn't just sit around and wait when he knew the Lord wanted him to go. He acted trusting that God would reveal his will as he acted in accordance with his word. And that's the third point in your notes there. And you see the disciples do this as well when they cast lots. They acted trusting that God would reveal his will as they acted in accordance with his word. Here's a final thought as our, our worship team comes back up on stage. Just a, a practical thing, actually two, two practical thoughts, that uh, they certainly help me when I'm uh, trying to think of, or when I'm trying to discern God's will, and when I've recognized God's will and as I attempt to align myself with it. 
This is in your notes. God's primary assignment for all his disciples is the advancement of his kingdom through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You see that in the Great Commission. We say it every Sunday. That's our mission as a church is to be and make disciples. Be disciples who make disciples. All throughout the New Testament, you see this. Even the name apostle, they were sent to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So our primary assignment is being and making disciples, and that's how God's kingdom advances, okay? So if you didn't know that, now you do. If you're a disciple of Christ, that is your primary mission. You know, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? You are here to have a relationship with God. You are here to advance his kingdom through the work of Jesus Christ. That's your mission. Now you know if you didn't before. So, if you know your mission, and you know what God wants you to do, you can kind of rest in that confidence when you don't have all the details. Just like Paul did. Paul knew what God called him to do, and if he didn't have the details, he'd just start walking knowing that if he's, what he's doing is in accordance with God's word, that God would show up. He also knew, this is sometimes where we get stuck, when we're trying to discern God's will between something we already know is wrong and something that we know is right. We're like, God, give me a sign about how to, you know, live a holy sexual life. And we know that something in our lives is out of order, but we don't, you know, we don't act on it yet. And we're like, God, you know, are you going to endorse my behavior already? Are you going to help me, you know, help me to adapt? You know, give me a sign or whatever. Well, God's already given you the sign. It's in the Bible. And if you've been praying, you've probably sensed a disconnect in your spirit. You've sensed that there's something going on, and you know what it is. So if you follow that path, if you follow the sinful path, you can expect God to try and help you guide back on the path. But that's not specifically, or rather, actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to leave that open-ended. God will always try to direct you back to the path of righteousness if you're not on it, okay? So if you are listening to the voice of the Spirit in your life and he's like, hey, you need to get off that path, You've read in my word, and I've told you that you need to do this. Don't wait anymore. Just do it. Just do it. Align yourself with God's will. If you know what it is, you have no excuses. Align yourself with God's will. But that said, if you are walking the path and you're trying to fulfill your mission, here's a question that you can ask, and then I'll give you a statement that I didn't put in your notes that I thought about on Thursday that I think kind of sums it up well. When I'm seeking God's will for my life, Am I seeking to fulfill my assignment as a disciple? Pretty simple. I don't need to preach it because I already did. Here's the, uh, here's the second thing that I added. And this is, this is a truth. This is scriptural. It's not out of scripture, but your, uh, God will, God's will will always be in alignment with your assignment. Because if your assignment is advancing his kingdom, and that's God's will, anything else he tells you to do, it's going to fit in that bucket. And nothing that he tells you to do will fit outside it. It will all fit in your mission of being a disciple who makes disciples. So that's an easy way that you can check. If you sense that something that you're, that you're doing or you're thinking about doing, if you sense that that is outside of your mission as a disciple, like it might hinder your ability to advance the kingdom, or it might hinder your witness, or it might cause something bad to happen that would stop you from advancing God's kingdom, that is an easy way to check if that is something that is God's will or not. Does that make sense? Just a practical tool for you. Is it in alignment with my assignment? Or with my assignment? God will always lead you to holiness, towards righteous living, and to grace. And the pattern we see 
in the second part of the first chapter of Acts is the disciples were in unity with Christ. They were in unity with each other. They sought God's will through the word that he already revealed in the pages of Scripture. And they even had less than we had. They only had the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament and New Testament. So we even have more instruction. We're, we're in, in that way, in that sense, we're in a, in a very privileged time because we have access to more Bible and more of God's word than they had at that moment. So if we seek God's will in his word, when we apply biblical wisdom to our questions and to discerning God's will, and ultimately when we act in alignment with God's word, we can trust that he's going to show up and direct us where we need to go, even if you don't know all the details. Let me pray for you this morning. Jesus, I'm thankful that you give us good instruction from your word. I thank you that you exalt this word over everything because that means it's objective. That means that my feelings don't change your word. And so I pray that you would help all of us today to learn more how to align ourselves with your will. Speak to us about your will. Sometimes we don't know all of it. There's people in this room who have been, work, who have been walking with you for years and years, and there have been people in this room who have been walking with you for weeks and who, who might not have the breadth of knowledge that some others have. And so I pray that you would reveal your will to us through prayer, through the pages of your word, through wisdom and counsel from other uh, godly Christians. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in the room right now who does not have a relationship with you, I pray that this would be a moment where they start that. So let me speak to you. If you can hear my voice right now, if it's on Facebook, you're listening on our podcast, or you're here present with us, if you have not accepted the lordship of Jesus in your life, I want you to know God's will is that none would perish. God wants every single person to be redeemed. Because the Bible says our sin is what causes separation from God. And that sin carries a penalty that's ultimately a spiritual and eternal death. But Jesus Christ came to save us from that. When he died on the cross, his blood covered that penalty for our sins. And so now we can be redeemed. That is the will of God. The will of God was that he sent his only son to die on a cross so we could be redeemed. That's amazing. So if you hear that message and you would say, I want God's will for my life, and it starts with Jesus Christ, I want to lead you in a prayer that you can pray along silently with me. It's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner and admit that you need a Savior. B, believe. Believe in Jesus, the Bible, uh, what the Bible says about him is true, that he was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a death he did not deserve, and that he rose again and ascended into heaven. Believe that and then see, choose. You have to choose to make him your Lord, and you have to choose to ask him for forgiveness. So if that's you, let me just pray this prayer with you, and you can pray along silently with me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have tried to do things my own way. And now, I've heard about you in the pages of the Bible, and I believe that what it says is true. And I believe that it's God's will that you came to earth, that you lived that sinless life, and that you ultimately perished on a cross to save me from my sins. And I believe that you're alive today. And today I choose to make you my Lord and to ask you for forgiveness. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? And would you send your spirit to come live in me? Help me to be able to discern your will and to follow you where you lead. 
Thank you for saving me. Amen.